When I was in junior high, I'm just going to be honest, I was a hot mess. It's true. I uh, I pulled out my yearbook and uh, was looking at it this last week. And uh, the first thought I had was, why in the world would my mom and dad allow me to go to school looking like that? That's the first thing that crossed my mind. I was like, I was just a hot mess. And the reason, part of the reason I was such a hot mess in junior high is I had no clue who I wanted to be. I went through so many phases. Um, I, for a while, I was sure I wanted to dress up as like the preppy kids. You scared me there. I thought a picture of me in junior high was about to pop up on the screen. And I was like, how did you get your hands on that? That is not on the internet. I, I wiped that clean. But if you come to a small group tonight, I'll actually pull out my yearbook for you. Um, I, for a while, I, I was sure that I wanted to be a part of the preppy kids. And so I wore like khakis and polos, polo shirt. Um, I had a kind of a hairstyle like this, but along my part, I had it spiked up along the part because that was in back in the day, a little bit of a spike along the part. Um, I wore, so if, if you remember back in like the late 80s, early 90s, it was really popular to roll up your jeans. And so you had to do the fold over to the left and you'd roll them up like three rolls. And so they were, you know, I guess, what are those jeans now like, what are they called, uh, that women wear capris it was like the early capri right and so guys even did this and and we'd wear penny loafers with no socks and that was what preppy kids thought was cool back in the day so I went through that phase I went through a phase that I was sure I wanted to be a part of the drama team and uh, I actually somehow got into like the drama club picture because I wasn't in it for long um and uh and I was just sure um I actually got first place in a drama competition because back in the day you could do lip sync as one of like the competition at, at drama meets. And um, my group, we did Who Wrote the Book of Love. You guys remember that? Who Wrote the Book of Love. And so that was, we got first place for that, by the way. We were pretty, we were rock stars. Um, I was a football player. Um, I thought I wanted to be a cowboy. And so at one point I stole my dad's cowboy boots and wore those. I was a hot mess in junior high. And the reason why is because I didn't know who I wanted to be. Have you ever... Maybe not recently, unless you're in junior high or high school or college. Have you ever gone through one of those identity crises where you're just like, I just don't know. You still are. <laughs> Who am I? Who do I want to be? This is probably the most important question we ask ourselves, or one of. Um, and we wrestle with it throughout life. We wrestle with, you know, what kind of person, what kind of man, what kind of woman. What's my identity? During this series that we're in called Believe, we've been looking at, you know, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus, the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about the Bible? This week we're looking at what do we believe about our identity in Christ? We started it last week and my, uh, my preaching mouth was a whole lot bigger than my time allotted. And so I had to cut my sermon in half. And so you got the first half last week and you're going to get the second half this week. But I just want to review real quickly what we talked about because this is the crux of, of our identity in Jesus. Before we can talk about that, we have to understand that there's a lot of voices who are trying to tell you who you're supposed to be. The voice of your past is a strong voice. And maybe if you're like me, you have these reoccurring voices in the back of our head that says something like, why aren't you more like your brother? Why aren't you more like your sister? Or maybe it's a rejection letter from the past, or, 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 or maybe it's a, it's a choice that we made and we live with that guilt and it's just there in the back of our heads just screaming, you're never going to be better. You're a mess. You, this is who you're always going to be. 
No one's ever going to love you. There's these voices of the past that are so loud who are trying to creep in and, and create an identity in you that's just not who you are. Not only is the voice of the past really loud, but the voice of the present. It's those magazine articles and those covers and what we see on television that says, this is what you're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to act. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to look like this and act like this. And it's the impossible standards that the world tries to set up for us and says, this is what it means to be a man or a woman today. And it's just not reality and it's, or it's just not who God has called us to be. So who are we supposed to be in Jesus? Well, last week I just gave you a few thoughts to wrestle with. And the first one is this. Is that who am I? You're God's child. I mean, think about this. God doesn't say you're my servant. You're my slave. You're my subject. He says you're my kid. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you more than life itself. First John 3, 1, if you look in your notes, I put it in there. It says the love the Father... This is God saying, the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? The children of God. Say it with me. The children of God. You're not His subject. You're not His servant. He says, you're my child. And think about the implications behind that. If God is your Father, then that means quite a few things. That means you're under His protection. That means that you are, are under His blessing. That means that, that, that God, like a father on earth, takes care of their children. God is saying, you are my child and I'm going to provide and take care of you. I love you that much. You're, you're my child. Here's the second thought I shared last week, is that you're an heir. You're an heir. Romans 8.17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Well, what does that mean? What are we going to inherit? If we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus, what do we have waiting for us? And can I just say, one's eternity. God says, let me tell you what's in your future. If you're a child of mine, eternity in heaven is waiting for you. Not just eternity in heaven, but God's provision and God's blessing here on this earth. You're an heir to the presence of God. I mean, that's all pretty good, isn't it? You're a child of God. You're an heir of God. Here's a third thought. You are a temple of God. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says it this way. He says, you don't, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? I mean, think about the implications of that. That God loves you so much, that God trusts you so much, that He plants a part of Himself in you in His Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you have God's presence dwelling within you. You have access to His wisdom. You have access to God's power. You have access to God's peace. Have you ever gone through something that is just that was just life-shattering, maybe it's a death or somebody hurting you or, or, or whatever, and for some reason, somehow, you just have a peace that comes over you at some point. God says that, that that is available to you, a peace that goes beyond all understanding. It's the power of God, the presence of God inside of you. He loves you and trusts you so much. He says, I am placing a part of me in you in the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple. 
Your body is a temple of God. You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This idea, this transformation, is, is, the word, is the word metamorphosis is where we get the word metamorphosis from. And it's the idea of one thing becoming something completely new. It's, it's the caterpillar turning in to the butterfly. And, and butterflies don't crawl on leaves any longer. Butterflies don't munch on branches. That's what caterpillars do. Butterflies do something completely different. They fly. Where once they were crawling along life, now they're soaring. And they're completely new. They're not the old thing. And the scripture says is that's what happens to you. That is your identity. You are new. When you became a follower of Jesus, when you confessed your sin and asked to become Lord of your life, something changed inside of you. You became a new creation. Now, for some reason, sometimes it takes our minds and our hearts a little while to wrap our heads around this idea. And that's what we call the process of sanctification, of purifying our life to become more and more like Jesus. But the the transformation takes place instantly. You are new. You're a new creation. You're different. We're once You're this. Now you are this. You're a citizen of heaven. Scripture says in Philippians 3.20, says, but our citizenship, it's in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I have a little bit of identity crisis. I grew up in Texas. Um, I lived in Missouri for a while. I spent the last eight years living in Oklahoma. If you really want to have an identity crisis, be a Texan living in Oklahoma. I mean, that's weird, right? I actually became an OU fan. from, And I grew up a Texas fan. How do you do that to be a Longhorn and to now be a Sooner? It is weird. But it's true. But here's the thing. Even though I'm an Oklahoma, Missouri, Texas, Arizonan, I mean... Part of my heart will always be in Arizona because that's where my son was born, right? And so even though I'm all these things and my identity is a little messed up location-wise, my citizenship here isn't on this earth. It's in heaven. That we are just, the scripture says that we are just but strangers in this world. It says we're just visitors on this planet. That, that our true citizenship is in is yet to come as a follower of Jesus. Our real home is beside the Father in heaven. That's good news. Look, I'm a proud American. I am. I love my country. Um, But ultimately, my citizenship is not here. As a follower of Jesus, my ultimate allegiance is with our God. It's in heaven. Who are you? Look, we've been called lots of names over the years. If you're like me, you've been called lots of names. Some good, some bad. (laughs) Um, But God wants to give us a new name. You know, there's an interesting transaction that takes place throughout the Scripture where God calls a person. He says, says, this is what you're doing, but I have a new mission for you, a new way of life, and so I'm going to give you a new name. 
It happened to Abram. When God said, hey, your, your name is Abram, but I'm going to call you Abraham, which means the father of many nations. In the New Testament, the same thing happened to a guy named Saul who was a persecutor of Christians. And, and God met him on a road to Damascus with a blinding light. And he said, hey, um, your name used to be Saul, but I'm giving you a new name and a new mission in life. And your name is now Paul. It happened to a guy in Genesis chapter 32 by the name of Jacob. Jacob, the, the, the name Jacob means supplanter. And the reason he had that name was because he was a trickster type guy and he actually stole the blessing of his older brother Esau from his father. His father was, was, was losing his side and, and he tricked his father into giving him the firstborn's blessing and he ran for his life after that because he was afraid of Esau. The scripture says in Genesis chapter 32 that he's returning home and he sends his family and all the wealth and all the crops and all the animals that he's acquired before him to Esau. And, and it says that night that he wrestled with a stranger on, as, before he entered into, into his, his, his old home. And the scripture says that stranger was was the presence of God or the person of God or an angel of God. We're, we're not quite sure exactly who it was, but the scripture says that he wrestled with him all night and, and that the angel touched him on a hip because he couldn't get him to let go. So Jacob, you see him wrestling with God. And, and in that moment, he says, I'm going to give you a new name. See, your name used to be Jacob, which meant supplanter, but I'm going to give you a new name, the name of Israel, which means may God prevail or God perseveres. You're getting a new name. And for many of you this morning, it's time for you to have a new name. You've adopted names that people have given you. And God says, I have something better for you. I'm going to call you my child. I'm going to call you heir. I want to call you a temple. I'm going to call you a new creation. I want to call you a citizen of heaven. But what does that mean? Now this is where we get to this week. Just real quickly, just a few thoughts. What does that mean, this new identity of who we have in Jesus? And the first thought is this. Is it because of our new identity in Jesus, our new identity in Christ, we are free from condemnation. We're free from condemnation. What does that mean? A couple of weeks ago, I talked to a person here in our church, and they were sharing with me that, um, that they had had quite a week. They said, you know, Jared, um, for the last seven years... I've been living with a lot of guilt for something that I did um, a long time ago. And he said, I've, been, I've asked God many times over and over again to forgive me. Many times I've said, God, forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for what I did. And, and, and they said that, that, that no matter how many times I asked God to forgive me, I never really felt forgiven. I never really felt free. And they said, but this week something clicked for me. Something happened in my spirit, in my heart, where I realized that, that God truly had freed me, and I don't have to live in that guilt of that old decision, that old shame that I'd been wrestling with for so long. And I kind of chuckled. And I, and I said, you know, what's so funny about all this is that when you ask God to forgive you, and you meant it from the bottom of your heart, God forgave you. And you are free from that sin, from that condemnation. Here's the deal. You've been reminding God for seven years for something that He's already forgotten. You've been trying to remind God over and over again for something that you did years ago that he said, hey, I've already forgotten that. I've already forgiven it. What are you talking about? That's forgiveness. The scripture says that when God forgives us, he casts it into the sea of forgiveness. That our forgiveness, it stretches as far as the east is from the west. But here's the, here's the issue is that we have an enemy called Satan 
who accuses us and tries to get us to live in the shame of our past. And God says, no, you don't have to. The scripture, if you look in your notes, Romans 7.24, it says, what a wretched man I am. This is Paul writing. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin and death. Listen, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've ever lived with guilt and shame for something that you did, that you've asked forgiveness for, but you just haven't felt it yourself, God says, you're forgiven. Let it go. But there's an accuser who tries to get us to wrap up and to identify with that guilt and shame. You don't have to. Because of our identity in Christ, here's a second thought, we're valuable because of our position in Christ, not because of our performance. When I was in high school, my youth pastor told me, he said, he said, Jared, I just need you to hear this. There is absolutely nothing you could ever do to get God to love you more. Period. There's nothing. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can say. There's no no act. There's no missions trip that you could go on. There's no amount of self-sacrifice or tithe and offering that you can give to get God to love you more. And the opposite is true. There's absolutely nothing you can do to get God to love you less. He loves you as much as He's going to. And that's absolutely true. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. He said, if you, it's as if it's saying, you know, if you think God saved you because you're incredibly good looking of all the things that you have to offer God, he says, you're wrong, buddy. God saved you because of grace. Because that's what He does. He loves you. He redeems you. There's nothing that you can do to earn His grace or salvation. It's not by works so that no man can boast. Look, I cannot preach a good enough sermon to get God to love me anymore. Thank goodness. And I can't preach a bad enough one to get Him to love me any less. Thank goodness. I'm going to get as much love as I'm ever going to get. Because that's what He does. He loves us. We're valuable not we're valuable because of our position in Christ, who we are because of Jesus, not because of our performance or what we do here on this earth. And that ties right into this third this third eye. So, so why do we do what we do then? If we can't get God to love us more by our good acts and by our sacrifice and by our service and by dot dot dot, then why do we do what we do? Well, we do what we do because we live to express who we are in Christ, not to prove who we are. It's, a, it's an expression. We do good because it comes out of who we are in Jesus. Why do I serve? Why do I give? Why do I have? Why do I bless? Why do I help other people? Why do I give my tithes and offerings? Why do I do all those things? Is it because I can get God to love me a little bit more? Do I do all those things 
so that people can see how good a person I am and, and, and to prove who I am as a follower of Jesus? No, 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 no. I don't do it to prove. I do it to express who I am in Jesus. I do it because of all the good that Jesus has done for me. Being a youth pastor, I've gone on a lot of mission trips over the 17 years. And I've taken a lot of kids on a lot of trips across all over the United States and, and Jamaica and, and uh, Romania, just all over the place, right? Mexico. And um, you work really hard as a youth pastor to get kids to go on mission trips. It's like all year long, you just try to convince a kid, you definitely want to go on this because it's going to be amazing. It's going to be, and you do fundraisers and you wash cars and you, and you cook dinners and you just do all this nonsense to get people to go on this trip. And they go on it for lots of different reasons. Some go because their boyfriend or girlfriend is going and they're like, eh, I don't have anything better to do for these next 10 days, so I might as well go and hang out with them, right? Some go because they know we're going to Jamaica and like, hey, I can spend a day or two on the beach, you know, because I know we'll go to the beach for a little bit. I've never been there. It'll be really cool. And it's not really cool. It's really, really hot and humid, by the way. They, they go for lots of reasons. I had a kid tell me once that the reason they were going on a trip is because they needed to put it on their college application. He said, I'm just being honest with you. It looks good, you know, on my college application to say that I'd been on a missions trip and I'd served and I've done this. And he said, hey, I just really appreciate your honesty. Now I'm going to be praying for you like crazy while you're on this trip. But I at least appreciate you telling me the truth. But some kids go because they realize all the things that God had done for them. And they just wanted to have an opportunity to serve and to be a blessing to other people who needed the love and the grace of God. There's lots of reasons we do things. But we don't do it to prove who we are. We can't prove. We do it to express who we are in Jesus. It's out of the overflow of God's love in our lives that we do good in this world. And that's a part of our identity. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were created to do good in this world. Here's a fourth thought. Because of our identity in Jesus and who we are in Christ, we can focus on building others up, not tearing them down. This world that we live in tells us to win at all costs, right? Win at all costs. And the only way you can win is if someone else loses. That's the only way you can win in this world. The only way you can win is at someone else's expense. And so you push and you shove and you, and you hurt and you stamp down because if you win, if they lose, you win. And it's just not true when it comes to our identity in Jesus. We don't have to win. Because we've already won. And we want other people to join in the winning. Here's the truth. It's that when I build other people up, I get pulled up with them. When I make my life about making other people better, it helps me to become better too. 
1 John 4, 9, and 11 says this. Says, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Underline this last part. Maybe you should too. Dear friends, since God so loved us, what does He say? We also ought to love one another. My life is at its best when I make it about making other people's lives better too. That I don't have to beat someone else down to make myself feel better. But I feel at my best when I make someone else's life better. Here's the last thought. Is that we can accept who we are. Because of our identity in Christ, we can accept who we are without comparing ourselves to others. You've ever heard, why can't you act more like your brother, your sister, your whatever? See, we live, um, we live in a culture where competition rips people apart. And here's the truth, is that when we compare ourselves with other people, we always lose. We always lose. When I compare what I know about me and all my messes and all my flaws and all my whatever, when I compare what I know about me to what I don't know about you, I mean, I only see your outward stuff. I don't know your struggles. I don't know what you face in life. I don't know what you feel on the inside. But when I compare what I know about me to what I don't know about you, I lose every time. I always lose. Because I can't see everything there is to see about you, and I know everything there is to know about me, all my flaws. So I lose every time. Listen, God is crazy about you just the way you are. There's no comparison. It's your identity in Christ. He says, when I see you, I see my son, and I'm crazy about you. Flaws, pimples, and all. I'm going to ask Sarah to come up and to help us close in this song. And as I do, I just want you to think through um, who, who are you? Who are you? If I was to ask that question, who are you? Who are you? Could you say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, man, I am a son or daughter of the King. I am God's child. Do you know the implications of what it means to say that I am an heir, a temple, that I am a new creation, the old God is new has come, I am something new, I am a citizen of heaven. Maybe you have some old words, some old names that have been shuffling around your heart and your head, and it's time to to cast those names out and to focus on the name that God has given you. Beloved. Grace-filled. Child of God. Holy and blameless.